There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. And once again, welcome to Farfetched Fables. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome. Come on in, grab a drink, relax. So, here we have show number two of Farfetched Fables on the 29th of April, 2014. Our first story today is Demons Hide Their Faces, followed up by The Pirate's True Love. So, first up. Demons Hide Their Faces by A. A. Atanasio A. A. Atanasio is the author of 22 novels and two story collections. He lives in Hawaii and writes his fiction inside a volcano, Coco Crater, a botanical garden near his Honolulu home. You can visit his website for more details. The story is read for you by Mark the Encaffeinated One Kilfoyle. He loves fiction so much so that he's written some, such as the Parsec-nominated Tainted Roses, read quite a lot, a library of over a thousand half-read books and growing, and now narrates them, sometimes actually recorded for others. He's found that volunteering for a dozen years in radio was a decent way to get a full-time job as a programme director at a community radio station in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, but not such a great way to finish his thesis, so he stopped at a master's in computer science. He can be heard frequently on chsrfm.ca, and two of his shows regularly appear as podcasts, can be found at encaffeinated.ca and theweirdshow.com. He likes cats enough to pet them but not enough to own one, and computers enough to own several but pet none of them. He will someday write a million words, but at this rate that will require life extension, so he eagerly awaits the ability to upload into a computer if that hasn't already happened, and this is all only a simulation. Enjoy the story. Demons Hide Their Faces by A. A. Atanasio Demons Hide Their Faces by A. A. Atanasio Winter set in Egypt, beside the rotting canal at Sidi Bashir, with a little ceramic hashish pipe in her freckled hand, a thin thread of palpitant smoke twisting in the air before her. The professor faced her student and informed him, seriously and with hollow impersonality. The most avid collectors of books are demons, but they only want the old texts, the oldest texts. The student, with his generous innocence, didn't take her meaning literally. Yeah, I've heard that a tell that a smuggler in the stalls of Portobello Road 
You can get 30,000 pounds for even a small tablet from the dynasty of Nippur. He was a young man, with the look of a young man. Those prices would make anybody a devil. Rufus' hair cropped close to a round head, alert, brown, lemuroid eyes, and a lanky frame gave him the winsome aspect of a youth who had flourished as an antelope in another life. That memory of ignorance traveled with him wherever he wandered across the floor of the damned. He never tired of recollecting his evening in Sidi Bashir, and touched the pain of the ignorance that had delivered him to this eerie netherworld. He never tired at all, for in hell no one sleeps. Texts are more than you think they are, said the professor, and the sweet smoke from her pipe puzzled the air between them. It's not for the money that demons want those ancient artifacts. Again, he assumed that by demons the professor meant immoral collectors, people who would stop at nothing to acquire the rare cuneiform tablets and cylinder seals that commanded the highest prices at auctions. His misunderstanding was natural, for the professor did not seem a woman inclined to supernatural fantasies. She was known among the wealthiest families in both hemispheres as an antiquary of the highest erudition, with postings as a bonded codex agent for Christie's and Sotheby's, credentialed as a bibliophile in the Museum of Antiquities in Berlin, and tenured as professor of historiography on faculty at the Sculo Normale Superiore in Pisa, where the student had met her. His quest began at the horned gates of Goetia. Footed upon a lake bed of jagged lava and grouted with human bones, a colossal wall extended to the borders of sight, wide as the world rim. The improbable rampart reared toward an indigo zenith and chimeric cloudscapes that ranged across the welcome with a disdainful and seraphic likeness of floating pagodas and blue tabernacles. A round gateway loomed unguarded. Corroded iron palings, wrought intricate as gothic heraldry for devils, told him nothing, nor did he recognize, at first, yon cinderland. I don't think we're going to find any valuable artifacts here. The student watched gnats spinning in the humid air above the putrid canal, where children dived in the ooze for coins. No bookstalls existed among the sprawling hovels of oyster-colored brick. Why are we here? The oldest texts are powerful talismans against evil. The professor sucked placidly on his ceramic pipe and watched light bleed from the citron sky. Do you believe in evil? He squinted to see if she were teasing him. On the crowded tram out of Alexandria, which had forced them together, among Bedouins with their chickens and vegetable baskets, and improvident Egyptian families, on their way to the dense Atarine quarter, or a steep littoral villages outside El Iskandaria, she had offered nothing. Does it matter what I think? Does it matter? Had he actually said that to her, he could no longer be certain if that fateful evening in City Bashir stamped his mind with memory or imagination. Since entering Goetia, mongrel speculations prospered. The wind coughed like a lion in this gloomy world. Individual clouds hung low over slurry horizons, and migrated lumberingly as herds of gray bison. From out of the mists a rider approached, a plum-blue African in snowy turban. Upon the broken ground his camel set down its large soft pads with serene elegance. The rider turned his flat profile toward the gobolic brink of the sky, and spoke in Enochian, a language like the screaming of eagles. So you cherish a modern sensibility. Behind the professor, scarlet rays reached through clouds of mosquitoes 
and glimmered on violet waterways and goose-winged sails of dows hurrying toward night. You accept that we are infinitesimal creatures, our lives insignificant, our opinions of reality arbitrary and ultimately meaningless, yes? Reality itself is meaningless. Ah, quite so. She laughed as abruptly as snapping a twig or plucking a flower. Does that trouble you? Should it? The student felt annoyed. Love, or an alloy of carnal yearning and exotic allure that the student understood as love, had inspired him to follow her to Egypt on what she called a book hunt. He had hoped that this trip would provide an opportunity for serious work, by which he could demonstrate his skills and, perhaps, win her affection. But she seemed to be toying with his mind, and that stirred in him both gamey vexation and quirky arousal. Was it the desperate moment of standing in a volcanic terrain, the color of elephants, or the redolence of sandalwood drifting from the rider's black abaya, that inspired the student to take the enlarged, extended hand. No sooner was he hoisted atop the camel than they hurtled into formless fog. The crying wind seethed. Eyes bleared by mist and speed, he pressed his face into the rider's back, breathed deeply of heathery incense. The wind's tormented cries writhed louder, he couldn't stop his ears for holding on to the rider, clasping with all his might not to be thrown by the jaunting beast. The wind, shrieking through the crannies of his brain, broke into voices. Schizoid whispers and shouts assailed him. Vaporous calls and responses feathered into ghostly conversations. And the cloven wind, like a vast, living thing, uttered intimacies and obscene endearments that pinned his soul like a rape-victim. The professor said with sad resignation, as if imparting a fact stolen from the dead and costing her soul, The measure of a mind has no other gauge than the significance that the mind endows upon the world. Then my measure is pretty close to zero, he answered allowing himself to sound nettled. Because I don't think the world has any significance whatsoever. Zero. She smiled without mirth. He had never before seen a woman of such brash beauty, and her unhappy smile stirred in him a scary and parlous thrill. Zero is a remarkable cipher, a figure of wonder second only to infinity. I was never much for math. And yet, math is all there is. Behind wisps of sun-crayoned hair, her broad face with its fasted cheekbones, violently askew nose, and proud Byronic jaw surveyed reality through the eyes, ice-green and recessed as a pugilist's, with no farded upper lid. Ever wonder why mathematics so precisely maps reality? Never gave it any thought. Sun rays slashed the fog of Goetia to summer haze. The camel bumped softly along a grassy hummock. Parkland sprawled before them, replete with chestnut avenues, flowery hedgerows, and high peaceful fields tilted on slopes of emerald sward. The blue of the cumulus sky cut his heart with bliss. They stopped, and the turban rider reached around, grabbed his passenger's arm, and deftly swung him to the ground. "'You understand me now,' he said in a shammy voice. "'The wind has brought to you the Enochian language. "'Who are you?' I am the messenger sent to deliver you from the Goetic gates. Behind him, a flock of doves flew into the beautiful sky. This is where we part, I to the uplands, and you, you go down there. The blue-black face gestured behind the traveler, 
Tis swampland of haggard briar, a smoldering garden of tormented trees, hung with shag moss, tattered, and sear as rotted cerements. Of course, you're a bibliophile, as am I. Vesser's remorseless gaze frightened and thrilled him. She looked simultaneously menacing and incomprehensibly lovely. Words are your passion, yes? Yes. You realize, of course, that words began as numbers. The first alphabets are alphanumeric systems. To the ancients, every letter possesses a unique number value. Every word equals the sum of the number values of that word's letters, and every phrase, sentence, page, and text exhibits an additive number value. Fundamentally, this ancient system constitutes a protoform of our own alphanumeric computers. Watching her sitting in the vitreous light of day's end, her back against the rough thorn tree with Altair caught in the branches, he listened to the fluency of her voice without hearing her. When he realized that she had stopped and waited on his reply, he felt as though trying to retrieve a cancelled dream. I'm more interested in phonological studies in Akkadian. In the swamp of Goetia, claggy mud pulled at each step and led him in a slow spiral among dolorous trees and rank weeds. At the center, he came to a black mirror where nothing moved. Shawl moss hung still, gray as wizards' beards in the twisted cypresses. Cattails and reeds sat paralyzed. On a flat rock at the center of the glassy mirror, the demon of the place loafed. He thought it was a turtle, head and limbs tucked out of sight. From inside its serried shell, shaggy with green fungus, it addressed him in the Enochian tongue. I am ancient proof alone. I am a voice not heard, yet loved as the stillness and the black pearl. Who are you? I am lost. You are not listening. The professor adjusted her silk pugri scarf against the chill, crepuscular wind. Night swelled quickly. The children who had been playing in the murky canal were gone. Above fan palms, clear panels of starscapes glinted, and a few cirrus burned orange among the constellations. The alphanumerics of writing originally served exclusively as a hieratic system. Hieratic? Employed by priests? For what? To worship their gods? He offered her a quiet smile. Were Enku, Annie, and Ishtar big on ciphering? The ciphering of writing manipulates the gods. She leaned forward with an almost deathly smirk. The first texts are the software programs that direct the magic forces of the world. With them, the magi of Sumer generated civilization. All the fundaments we take for granted. Time defined in base sixty. Agriculture, husbandry, architecture, cities, and, of course, money. His attention had drifted into the smoky glitter of day's end among the closing fruit stands and narrow shops crammed with clayware and lucky mirrors. You or the hashish talking? From its craggy shell the demon directed him, or banished him, out of the marsh. You dream creature of a hotter world, come no closer. Turn your face of light toward the gleaming grass and step away among horizon clouds. What you seek goes again shining into darkness far from here. Be gone, bright glance. To his right, tall grass shimmered in a sudden breeze, glistening like fur. The wind track swept towards a blighted horizon of bare trees in agonized poses. Beyond them, resinous clouds staggered low in the sky. He trudged in that direction. At dusk he mounted a scarp of poison ivy and clambered free of the leprous swamp. The turtle in its painted shell awaited on a rock hub. All things ended in their beginning, end here. 
The slant light leading over his shoulder pierced the opaque murk he had traversed, and he glanced back as witness to mud-mired wraiths of miscarried life. Clownish ruffles of condoms wavered like sea anemones in oily clouds of sperm. Prawns of abortus, gilled-gray clots, wrinkled death puppets roiling among the small weightless skulls and quail-sized briskets. In disgust, he yanked his attention away, and the turtle chortled. These kissed life on the mouth and were eaten. Don't begrudge me my small pleasures. The professor drew languorously on her ceramic pipe and exhaled through her nostrils dragon jets of blue smoke. Before the advent of writing, of spelling, there was no civilization. For over two hundred thousand years, humanity, people no different than you and me, wandered the surface of the earth as nomads, puny, dispossessed clans following wild herds and the seasons. Why did that change so abruptly? How have we come to find ourselves here, in a world of jets and cell phones? Her hard eyes softened to a suspiring gaze. Magic. Right. Naturally, you're disinclined to believe me. But truth isn't cancelled because of your disbelief. She leaned back and averted her green gaze. A fire of carob wood flapped on the strand, stirred by gusts from the dark sea on the other side of the canal. Silhouettes of robed figures passed before it. The world we see around us is but a scrim to a vaster drama. Demons and the allies of life contend on a stage wide as all the universe, and the outcome of that conflict is entirely uncertain. Beyond Goetia, tableland of scalloped salt glowed violet under starshine. He slogged all night toward crenulate mountains. At dawn he toiled up a fuming esker, and stood staring through mauve veils of blowing pumice at a mirage city. Thirst bulged in his thick face. He squinted against sundogs flaring from parabolic windows of Art Deco spires. Marble vaults and domes glowed flamingo pink in the early light. Steel cables moored to tower needles, zeppelins, big as August clouds. Parched and haggard, he slumped into the metropolis of ethers. A fountain whose cubist segment smeared together in the blurry heat to an alabaster archer, jetting prismatic water from her naked breasts, slaked his thirst. Crowds coalesced out of the quaking air, phantom forms sparkling like trout. In the moil of the translucent crowd, he confronted an older semblance, an effigy of sadness, hair streaked with sun pastels, and weather countenance of an immense world-weary serenity. Himself? I brought you to Egypt to recruit you. The professor did not look at him as she spoke. She watched a coal-rimmed moon rising, floating free in a dreamless gulf of night, newel bone ascending to the void above earth, to the celestial plains of the gods and the stairway of stars. I myself was recruited long ago. I'm tired now. I want to live again in the everyday world. But someone must take my place. Only in Egypt were the Magi built the most precise corridors into the demon world. May we kindle the hope of retrieving the texts they are stealing. If we don't get them back, civilization will collapse. Do you realize how whack this sounds, Professor? It could only have been a joke. He inclined his head backward, anticipating her laughter. I'm counting on your not believing me. Her breath shone in the phosphorous night of desert Egypt. Moonlight moved in her hair like a lustrous fluid. Deception is out of the question. So incredulity will serve as well as it did with me long ago. Well, okay. He waited till she looked at him, and in her faniant eyes he fathomed 
She was not joking. You've got my incredulity. What do you want to do with it? Above the metropolis of Aether's, storm clouds towered like a cathedral. Before he could question his older self, a tornado of flies descended from those thunderheads and assailed the plaza. The ghost crowd stampeded down the boulevards, waving fists above their heads. A frenzied horde of mounted lancers and archers, faces veiled with black headscarves, charged out of the maelstrom of flies. Robes bedighted with mirror shards and red tinsel, they rode standing, headlong horses, eyes rolling, snarling and slavering, wild manes, jet flames. He fled. The nightmare riders slashed the vaporous denizens of the Mirage City and bore down on him, yammering in Enochian voices, high and far-carrying. The dreaming fire! Stamp it out! Among purple billows of flies, he fled. The student left behind the greasy canal at City Bashir, snagged in an invisible weave of curiosity, fantasy, and obdurate desire. He obeyed the odd instructions of his professor. The demons have stolen a cuneiform tablet from the ancient dynasty of Sargon, the powerful Lugal-Zuki-Kipum-Makatum, kings thrown to the scorpions. Her face looked tired and yet ferocious. Hard bits of moonlight shone in her eyes, as though some prodigious activity in her brain had ignited her thoughts. You'll find it in one of the prophet's tombs, the first cave on the sea cliffs west of the canal. When you bring it back, you will have established your career, because the throne kings has yet to be discovered. Hurry, though. Access is only possible on that final day of winter, before the full moon rises. And watch your step. There will be the usual litter of beer bottles underfoot. Beneath the screaming horses he fell. Trampling hooves pounded him flat to a slant of three o'clock in the afternoon sunlight. Uncanny memories of boredom, soul ache, driftless solitude beyond rescue possessed him. Weed precincts of rail yards, gray rain leaning on windows, dangling husks in a spider's web, fronds of peeling wallpaper, neon shadows flickering into cracked ceilings, aimless pollen dust bound for limbo across a vacant farmyard. Far away, the screams of horses dwindled into echoes. Lugal Zuki Kipum Makatum, stashed in a sea cave? He felt like a fool as he crossed the cobbled beach where the sponge fleet harbored. The burnished faces of the crew glowed like copperware in the driftwood fires, watching him. Through zinc moonlight he found his way past corrugated iron wharves and an irrigation trough from the canal choked with bramble. He breathed wind-flung brine below the sea cliffs and the brassy kiss of nearby factories. A path of coral marl crunched under his shoes and led him to a gaunt cave. The mournful horn of a barge sliding along the canal turned his attention to the sparkling skyline, coruscating minarets and skyscrapers beyond a dark headland and terraces of date palms with beetlejuice poking through. That the professor refused to accompany him, that she preferred the indolence of her ceramic pipe, assured him this was all a gruesome joke. But to what end? He poked his head in the narrow opening. By reflecting surf-glow, he spied the promised litter of beer bottles and the fast-food cardboard footprints in the sand of the cave entry, and names and dates scrawled in an Arabic script upon the wall. Let her have her joke, he mumbled, and shoved into the cramped space, intending to turn about quickly and find her laughing in the moonlight under the pectoral curve of a dune. Brisk sunlight and a bad smell crazed over him from the horned gates of Goetia, and his heart coughed with fear. He wanted to die. Yet something viscous and sticky in him cleaved to the world's brink. Not love, for all love's fabled glory. Not hope, 
the soul's shuddering sickness. Willpower was a thing in a jar. Rage alone upheld him. Fury at the absurdity. Demons? He violently rejected the idea that watchers in the dark could molest him with, what, sadness, desolation? The idea choked him with ire. He would not be squashed by ogres and monsters. He would not let go. Like the stone refusal of Christ in the Pieta's arms, like mountains welded to the planet's rims, he clung to life. With indomitable anger, his entire being quivered, and he rose up from the floor of creation. He rose up through the scalloped salt flats. The barren pan wove shimmering illusions in the horizon's hot blue thread. Platinum towers, glass high-rises, and office buildings with dirigibles moored to their steeples stood on plains of heat divorced from the ground. He turned his back upon the metropolis of Aethers, contemptuous of its apparitions, and scanned the white expanse for the whirlwind of flies and the masked horsemen who had trampled him. The dry lake ranged empty under the fierce sun. "'Where am I?' he asked the fiery dream. "'What's happened to me?' he bawled a grotesque cry. Days later, filthy and ragged, he slogged out of the desert. Swollen shapeless in a horror of agony, he shuffled into a magnolia forest. He collapsed among aloe spears, crowding a pool of water clear as air, and he drank. Gradually, sight returned. He sat up with a start. With stupefied brain, he squinted at the pool that had refreshed him and saw submerged bodies bloated and pale as dough. Their hair spread like smoke across the pebbly pond bed. Suicides, someone spoke in Enochian, a woman in maroon pajamas and black veil. She sat drenched in sunlight on the porphyry steps of a small temple. Onyx columns and cupola of green chalcedony enclosed a marble pedestal. Atop the pedestal, the statue's gypsum head lay on its side, wearing an ancient enigmatic smile in his face. Spellbound, he stood and uttered in a voice hoarse with wonder, You know me! Naturally! The eyes above the veil, soft with dreams, susurrant as an addict's, shone black honey. You are a factory for the manufacture of excrement. You are a pylorus of endless hunger. I know you, you world of multiplying bacteria, awe of maggots. Demons! He groused and angrily departed the temple of himself. Hell! He spat derisively, finally accepting the absurd truth of his predicament. Hell and demons! Damn it all! Behind him, the priestess from his temple yelled, You will drink rat's tears, do you hear me, you bile doctor, you sphincter? Yeah, yeah. At the sandy verge of the magnolia forest, he paused. Inversions of heat stood the sky's tranquil lake upon the silicate plain of noon. Far off, he glimpsed the metropolis of Aethers. He was not bound there. His own ghost in that city had confided a longer journey, and only silent speculation where he might retrieve the tutelary Lugal Zukiki Pum Makatum. The Dreaming Fire That was the name given him by the demon horseman, whose hooves trampled yet could not kill him. Dreaming this fiery hell, and dunes like slouching lions, an evil dream. Yet a dream from which there was no waking, for he never slept. He felt his mind slip along fault lines of madness. More deviltry. He stared at a rock warped by heat until he made it disappear. With the force of his will he provoked wind-feathered clouds out of sapphire emptiness, he inked night and stenciled the void with stars. For the first time in hell, he smiled.
a hoarded mass of bougainvillea, palms and giant ferns, interrupted the magnetic haze of the wasteland. Morning sun spangled among mango trees. With dream force he erased a salt lake and its further forevers of desert, and in their place he imagined an oasis. He breathed jasmine air and strolled into the magnificent grove, a pool where he knelt to drink reflected how his wanderings as a dream creature in the netherworld had reconfigured his hot atoms upon some grittier imagination deep in his psyche. Sun-hued hair, curly as a heifer's, weathered face hollow of cheek as an elk's, a taurine neck, and eyes once reminiscent of a gazelle's, now tapered to the thin, pitiless gaze of a jinn. At a watering trough shaded by acacia and sycamore, camels gnarred. Their dismounted riders, cowled figures in crimson robes trimmed in tinsel, loitered in a courtyard beyond large folding doors with pistol bolts and inscribed panels of sphinxes and griffins. They sat together on the raked sand of a rock garden and motioned for him to approach. Lokal Zuki Kipom Makatom, an iron voice spoke. In the corrugated sand before them stood a clay tablet and scythe with cuneal scratchings. Take it. After a carafe of date wine, he conversed with the demons in the rock garden. They wanted empathy. We are part of each other, they explained in their basso profundo voices. You and we belong to the same universe, albeit at far extremes. And now that you know you are a dreaming fire, you can rearrange this world and annoy us, but you cannot thwart us. You are too small. Try to understand. Here are the dark limits of our expanding cosmos, the Golgoth year of what you call time. Each atom of our world is as large as the entire universe of your lifetime. Our reality is inherited from yours. Can you blame us for tinkering with our past, your world, to shape the contours of our experience? Butterflies, red as firecracker confetti, jittered around the sweet fumes of the carafe. Why does your happiness require you to inflict suffering on my world? That is not our intention. Any more than your carpenters intend to inflict suffering on the forest when they carve a tree into a house. I've seen evil. Dream creature, you see what you dream. You see with human eyes. We sympathize, our positron brains, like your carbon brains, perceive reality in selective ways. Truth is a fiction, reality unknowable. He peered into the darkness of their hooded faces with mutinous eyes. I will return the throne kings to my world. That magic will hold you at bay. You shall thwart only a portion of our efforts to design our own truth. We shall steal other texts, and I will return here and take them back. Some, yes. Others, no. You shall tire, hot and compact as you are, as dazzling to us in your power as you are. Your energy is finite. Others will join me. Others, no. You are alone, doomed to defend one small segment of time in your world. The text you retrieve will preserve your civilization only for a while. We will steal them again. You will retrieve them again. We will steal and you retrieve. Again and again you will attack us and then circle back to that small tract of years that is yours and yours alone to protect like a vicious guard-dog on a short leash. The demon's words made his brain feel like a strange machine whose function eluded him. I will tell others. Many will join me. The laws of information and entropy do not permit that. I don't understand. Of course not, else you would not speak such foolishness. 
The more information you spread, the greater the chaos you create. The more chaos you create, the easier for us to topple your civilization, the way a lumberjack fells a tree for the sawmill. You will help us enormously if you do not hold this secret very close indeed. Terror smoldered in him. What are you saying? Think of a house of cards. The information necessary to define the coordinates in space of those precisely ordered cards is much less by far than the information required to define the coordinates of those same cards scattered randomly. The greater the chaos, the more information, and vice versa. The burly voice smote him. The more people who know of us, or the more information you share with that one person who will replace you when you finally weary of this perpetual task, the greater the chaos by far, and the more material available for us to do our work. Crushed breathless by this hopeless revelation, he could barely ask, Why are you telling me this? They bellowed the answer in satanic chorus, Information! You benighted fool! The more you know, the greater the chaos that— He snatched the king's throne to scorpions, and ran wailing from the garden of demons, wailing as loud as he could to drown out those voices, damning him with their hideous secrets. A winged viper, tarry feathers a blur, eyes like fireflies, guided him across the badlands of hell to the goetic gates. Stepping past those slanderous iron palings, he found himself again in the sea-cave of Sidi Bashir, among strewn litter of empty bottles and used condoms. By some demonic temporal parallax, he had been returned to a time prior to his departure, antecedent even to his birth, the demon's tight leash. For weeks to come he felt as one does in dreams, imbrued with salty bereavement for the mundane reality departed from him forever, he proceeded in a daze. He carried heavily the silence inflicted on him, and bridled in his heart the horror of madness. As predicted by the professor who had damned him, Lugal Zuki Kipam Makatum earned him recognition in academic circles. He accepted a lecturer's chair in Sumerology at Trondheim in Norway, as far from Egypt as he could arrange. Yet, within a year, there appeared in the classroom a serenely tall man, a blue-black skin, wearing a black abaya and white turban. Among the sand cliffs and monuments in Egypt, secret corridors delivered him joylorn to the demon world whenever the taciturn messenger summoned. He came and went frequently to that hallucinatory domain upon the universe's dark rim, recovering texts the demon stole. Each journey wore him closer to madness. At last he could take no more. In that sanctuary of memory anterior to the aught of demons and their darkness beyond the crumbling stars, he recalled the professor who had recruited him. She would be of an age. Winter set in Egypt in the opulent Shiraz tea house, sitting under mirrored bird cages on a thistle-soft balakistan carpet, Hijaz incense twisting soft iridescent braids and the air behind him. The professor faced his student and informed her with a gentle, knowing smile. The most avid collectors of books are demons, but they want only the old texts, the oldest texts. What a fantastic narration. Thanks so much, Mark. I think it's a difficult story to bring from the page to the ears, but Mark does a really good job, and Mr. Atanasio himself was very impressed. So let's move on to our second story. It's called The Pirate's True Love by Shauna Graham. After working for many years in an independent bookstore, Shauna Graham has recently been devoting more time to various writing projects, in addition to writing several blogs of her own, she is also the book review editor for the arts and literature website Escape Into Life. Although more of a crime fiction reader than a crime fiction writer, 
she is happy to be considered a member of the international thriller writers, thanks to the inclusion of her story Gato in a fairy tale crime anthology called Grim Tales. Her short stories can be found in a variety of places on the web, and links to many of them can be found on her blog, Story Dump. Have a look at the Triple F website for links. This lovely tale is read for you by Fran Friel. Fran is actually a two-time Bram Stoker Award finalist and the winner of the Black Quill Award. She enjoys life with her husband by the sea on the central coast of California, and she also serves as full-time staff to Alice and Annie, the Cat Overlords. You can follow Fran's latest antics on Facebook, Twitter, and Fran Friel's Yarrafeast. For more info, just visit franfriel.com. So, let's hear the story. The Pirate's True Love by Shauna Graham The Pirate's True Love by Shauna Graham It was a fine spring morning as the pirate sat with his true love before sailing out to sea. She was wearing a long purple dress and her cheeks were red with crying. The pirate held her hand and promised her jewels and fine clothes, but nothing helped. She would much rather have sat with the pirate till the end of time and watched her purple dress turn to rags and then to dust than to have him sail off and find her the finest jewels in all the world. But she did not say this aloud because she knew that the pirate would not want to sit holding her hand until the end of time, even if her dress did turn to dust, for the pirate's heart would always be with her, but his mind would always be on treasure. So though she cried till her cheeks were red, she did not beg him to stay. The pirate sailed away that spring morning and gave himself over to plundering and looting. He was good at his work and lucky, and if that work involved a certain amount of antisocial behavior, well, it was what he was born to do. He was not a terribly analytical person, for he never stopped to ask himself why he needed to go around plundering and looting the high seas when all he'd really ever wanted was his ship and his men and the heart of his true love waiting back by the bay at home. Of course, he did have to pay somehow for the costly garments of satin and silk and lace he wore. True, these were not really necessary for plundering, but they did rather seem to go with the job. After he left, the pirate's true love walked to the cliffs every day and looked out over the water. Sometimes if she stood and stared long enough, she seemed to see the smoke of a great battle going on far out at sea. Of course her pirate love was by this time many leagues away, so this was either eye strain or imagination. And after looking a great while, she would sigh and walk sadly back to her humble home. It might have helped pass the time if the pirate had left some plunder to sort, or loot to tidy, but the fact was gold and jewels had a way of slipping through pirate's fingers, like so much water. By the time the pirate sailed out on his next adventure, there was never much left but the pirate's mess to clean up, which she somehow could not find altogether romantic. It was one day late in August when the pirate's true love turned from her lonely vigil on the cliffs, sighing because her humble home was now entirely too neat and tidy, now that the pirate's mess had long been cleared away, and realized that she was not alone. The truth was... She never had been alone, but had just become too far-sighted to notice. But now, if she squinted, she could see that there were many other pirates' true love standing on the cliff, sighing and straining their eyes over the all-too-empty waters. And she had to admit that, sad though it was, it was also just a little bit silly. After all, the pirates never came home before October. Now, the pirate's true love, and let us call her May, since that was her name, and we do not want to lose her in the anxious throng of other true loves there in the cliff. May could be a rather enterprising young woman when she saw the need, and right away she saw the need for a pirate women's auxiliary. For there is such a thing as too much looking out over the water. The pirate women's auxiliary flourished quite handsomely for a while. 
For one thing, with organization, only one true love needed to go and stand anxious and brooding above the cliffs on behalf of all the rest, and though at first they would quarrel among themselves for their turns, after a while they began to devote themselves to the group's new task, fundraising. For there was quite enough wealth in town, after all those years of relieving pirates of their treasure, to support any number of bake sales and raffles and charity balls. Though it is true that, during those latter events, the pirates' true loves would have to bravely blink back the tears as they thought of their bold buccaneers out looting and pillaging and not knowing what they were missing. And sadly, but also truly, there was more than one pirate's true love who suddenly noticed that there were some not-too-shabby-looking farmers and blacksmiths and shopkeepers around. That is not our story. The true loves remained loyal, but a problem began to arise. For when the brave pirates returned that fall, in November, and very soggy, they found that their true loves were not ooing and aahing over the heaps of treasure they had brought back with quite the enthusiasm the pirates were accustomed to arousing. The truth of the matter is, the fundraising had gone a little too well, and the pirates' true loves had managed to amass pretty much all the gold and jewels and fine clothes they could ever desire, and these did not slip through their fingers like water at all. Oh, they did try to summon up the right note of gratitude at being showered with diamonds and rubies, but it was hard as they were all secretly dying to get back to their carpentry lessons, for they had unanimously voted to use whatever excess earnings were lying around to build a nice warm tea house on top of the cliffs in time for spring, so that the lonely cliff vigil would not be quite so cold and, well, tedious. By now even the most steadfast of pirate true loves had begun to look for excuses to avoid their shift. So the pirates were a little dismayed, and the true loves were a little distracted, but if the jewels failed to excite, the hand-holding was still nice, and all went well through the winter. The pirates' treasure troves slowly dwindled, and unbeknownst to them, came back by indirect routes to their true loves' coffers. And at last a spring day came, when the pirates' needs must sail to replenish their pirate hordes. So the pirates held hands with their true loves, and the true loves' cheeks were red with crying, although noticeably less red than the year before, and some might even have been justly accused of cosmetic deception. And though their true hearts ached to see the pirate ship fade from view on the treacherous sea, they all hurried home to get the pirate's mess cleaned up because they were anxious to start working on a ship of their very own. For certainly, it is understandable that after you stand year in and year out watching a fine pirate ship fade from you on the treacherous sea, you might get some hankering to go out and find out what all this fuss is about. Because it couldn't be just about treasure, could it? As we have seen, the pirate's true loves had grown a little jaded about the gold, jewels, etc. So the handiest true loves built a sturdy little vessel and the sharpest true love studied navigation, and one warm day in August they were ready to sail. They christened the ship the true love, of course, and they ran up a flag made from May's purple dress, which was a much better use for it than letting it turn to rags. Emblazoned with a picture of two hands clasped, and they left a now thriving tea shop in the care of their faithful friends, who are now farmers, true loves, and blacksmiths, true loves, and shopkeepers, true loves, and they faded slowly away from view on the treacherous sea. When the brave pirates returned to their home by the bay, in early December, and even soggier than the year before, their ship rode more lightly on the water than it had in many a year, for truth to tell, their plundering had not come to much these last few months. Since August, in fact, they had not managed to get aboard a single fat galleon or even raid one silent, sleeping coastal town. 
for just as they came within firing range of some ship or shoreline, a jaunty little ship with a purple flag, they could never get close enough to quite make out its logo, and what some of them thought they saw was so ridiculous to be believed, would race into view and warn them off with a furious blast of cannons and muskets. And though the pirates fought very bravely and fiercely, inevitably they would eventually have to make their escape, hidden by the walls of billowing smoke all around them. They were bold and fearless, but they were not stupid. They knew when they had met their match. Curiously, none of this great bombardment ever seemed to actually hit their ship, and some of the pirates swore that the enemy was purposefully missing. But the other pirates only laughed at this, for the pirates' code made this unthinkable. Besides, some of that musket shot had come close enough to singe the whiskers of their gorgeous pirate beards. So now, as the brave pirates alit from their ship, each walked to his humble home a little more slowly, a little less boisterously, a little less certainly than he had the previous year. Though actually, they should have been walking faster, for the treasure chests they carried were quite a bit lighter than they had been then. They were not too sure that their true loves would love them quite so truly when they noticed that the customary shower of gold and jewels lasted for a conspicuously shorter period of time. The pirates, all in all, were a little ashamed. But what was shame when compared to the wonder that filled each pirate's heart as he approached his true love's door and found it locked and bolted? And what was shame compared to his consternation as he peered through a dirty window and could make out no warm and glowing fire, no true love waiting next to it? And what, above all, was shame compared to the terror that seized each pirate as he stood alone in the cold, damp night and thought that some farmer or blacksmith or shopkeeper might well be happy in his place tonight? Now, as each pirate was beginning to consider that treasure was a paltry thing compared to some other things that could be won or lost, a pinprick of light appeared on the crest of a hill above, and it was followed by another, and another, and another, until finally a torchlight procession could be seen wending its way swiftly down the hillside, and each pirate's heart leapt suddenly with a terrible yearning hope that sent him running to the center of town where the hillside road would end. And the pirate's true loves, after a long tramp from a secret lagoon, where a certain ship lay safely berthed for the winter, came rushing down to meet them, chattering vaguely of some pirate woman's auxiliary project, which had unavoidably detained them. If any pirate recalled, at that moment, a purple flag on a distant sea, he made up his mind to forget it. For all hearts present felt, though silently, that this reunion was something rather more than the usual shower of gold and jewels. One fine spring morning, in the following year, the pirates once again sat holding hands with their true loves, none of whose cheeks were red at all, but all of whose eyes glowed beautifully. And then, a little reluctantly this time, the pirates boarded their fine ship, which soon faded from view on the treacherous sea. And one warm day in August, for pirates are pirates and should never be thwarted completely, the true love sailed out after them, and so it sailed for many in August to come. I really enjoyed that one. I hope you did too. It's time for me to be off. Thank you so much for tuning in to our second show. I hope you enjoyed it. I really had fun. Next week we have stories for you by Sherwood Smith and Michael Cadnam, one of which is going to be narrated by yours truly. So pop over to the website and tune in. As always, it's been great. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, I hope I see you next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. 
dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.